This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The finance people wanted to be with creative people. The creative people wanted to be with finance people. And I saw that combination. Clients were like, this is the guy who want to have fun and actually make records of substance. This is the guy to work with. So I just did that. And I said, you know what? I don't want to be the guy that works at a company for 30 years and then my entire identity is gone. So I ended up writing a book, four books, actually. And to my office mates, I said, how do you do all this stuff? You got to find the intersection points. Hi, I'm Kabir Segel, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segel, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Kabir Segel, a best-selling author of more than 16 books across nonfiction and fiction. He's a Grammy-winning jazz musician. He's a producer and writer of documentaries on immigration and work. Kabir and his work have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, PBS, NPR, C-SPAN, National Geographic, and so many more places. He's done work with the late Congressman John Lewis, Muhammad Yunus, Andrew Young, and many more. Kabir's a U.S. Navy veteran. He's a reserve officer who served on active duty with special operations in the Middle East. He received the Defense Meritorious Service Medal. He served as a speechwriter on a presidential campaign. Uh, basically, he's the cooler Segel, but honestly... <laughs> I'm not related to Kabir. <laughs> I only discovered him six or seven years ago when a close friend bought me a copy of the book, The Wheels on the Tuk-Tuk. And I was like, wait, this guy has my last name. And we find out in this interview, his co-author is his mom. And over the past six or seven years, I've probably bought more than 100 copies of The Wheels on the Tuk-Tuk for my Asian and non-Asian friends alike. I literally have videos of friends in France showing me their daughters <laughs> singing The Wheels on the Tuk-Tuk. I don't even think my daughter knows the words to The Wheels on the Bus. Aww, Sharon. That's so cute. Kabir Segel, what'd you think? I think that in addition to his long, long list of accomplishments, what I was most impressed by and inspired by is that he has chai and samosas every day at 4 p.m. with his parents. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's like, one, I'm jealous. And two, right. like, if you read the resume, I'm glad I never knew this guy because he grew up in Atlanta near me in Alabama. Yeah. Had my parents known about Kabir? Oh, yeah, you would. I would be like, oh, why aren't you doing this? <laughs> Kabir's done all of these things. <laughs> but I have a podcast, mom. Yeah, yeah. You would have definitely heard about it from mom, dad. But I think, like, to me, that's a testament of the fact that he is such a good person. Like he does have a long list of accolades. And I think that at the core of all of it, it's because he wants to make an impact. And he talks to us a lot about that in our conversation. So I found him to be extremely inspiring and just an overall great guy. Yeah. What I love, it's about doing the work and picking the right projects. And walking away from the bullshit. And I think he kind of became actualized around that early on. And 
look, he might have a lot of successes, but it's we talk about it's the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of hard work and things that you don't see that go into every win and every success. That's for anyone. So we think you're really going to enjoy our conversation with our new friend in Atlanta, Kabir Segal. Kabir, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you here. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I normally ask this in kind of a snarky way, but I think my mom's going to wonder, actually, Kabir, (laughs) where are you from, Kabir Segal? (laughs) That's a good question. I'm still finding out because I've been looking into my family history quite extensively. I would first say I'm I'm from Atlanta. I'm from the South. Right answer. Right answer. Yeah. That's a good answer. I'm raised, and that's where I am right now. And I've always felt like an Atlanta and a Southerner. And I've lived many different places, but of course, my heritage is my family is from, my parents are from India, from uh, Punjab, and from Chandigarh, and I find that in looking at my, and we can get into this, my family history, there's a whole, you know, diaspora of people around the world that seems to have impacted my family history. So it's a loaded question, but the short answer is Atlanta. And what was that like? I mean, first, it's crazy that I didn't know the other Segal two and a half hours away from me growing up. (laughs) I thought we were the only ones in the South. What was that like growing up in Atlanta in the Burbs as a little brown kid? I got to say it was a bit insulated because my dad came to America in 1960. He showed up in Atlanta. He was Indian number nine. It was very few. And then, of course, the South has really exploded with the South Asian population. And for me, I went to a private school and... On one hand, it was very racially charged. This is the same school many, many years ago that refused Martin Luther King's children attendance. But by the time I went, they had evolved a little bit. But a lot of the folks would wear like Confederate belt buckles on their belts. And so it was a very kind of racially charged, uh, insensitive, I think, place. But I managed to sort of navigate by just working and keeping to myself, to be honest. And I had a pretty fast tongue. So if anyone came at me, I would come back quickly. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And also my my dad, I just finished making a documentary on my father. My dad was experiencing incredible success in the business world. And so he sort of broke a lot of glass ceilings in the South because a lot of his partners and business friends were people of import in the Atlanta business community. So that's why I say it was a bit insulated. I was having this experience of, at school, but at home, it was, it was an incredible childhood. And I was able to see really the world through my father's incredible success. What did your dad do? Dad was an engineer. He is an engineer. He came to, of all places, Auburn in the 1960s, went to Auburn University. Oh, this is why we're not friends. Now I understand. <laughs> uh- <laughs> exactly. He showed up there. And the first person he met at Auburn University was Lillian Carter, who was Jimmy Carter's mother. And Lillian Carter was a house mother. She invited him to Plains, Georgia for Thanksgiving dinner in 1961. And that's where the friendship between President Carter and my dad began. And my dad ended up as a, started as a very junior engineer at a company called Law Engineering. And then he went on to become the chairman CEO after 20 something years there and then took the company global. And this was during the time when Atlanta was really at the forefront of this major growth spurt, which is in the 80s and 90s leading up to the Centennial Olympic Games. And so my childhood was like, okay, the world is coming to Atlanta. It's becoming an international city. My dad hired Ambassador Andrew Young, who was then the mayor. And it was just a fascinating place to grow up during that time period. What did you want to be when you grew up? I think I wanted to be my dad. Yeah. 
he is my role model. And he was an engineer and he became an engineer because his father wanted him to be an engineer. But my dad would say he was a terrible student. And if he had to do it over again, he would like to be in social service because he likes just helping people. My dad was a great salesman and a great manager. He was a poor engineer. And those are his words. And so when it came to my journey, there was never any pressure to do what he did because he realized that he ended up living a life that he didn't really want in terms of his professional discipline. So that was kind of not the unspoken thing, but I wanted to be a role, I wanted to emulate my father. Is that the emulation? The fact that he started a path, but he wound up kind of doing his own thing. That was the admiration then? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I went into business, but then I realized I'm kind of bored. And I realized to be chairman CEO of a big company, you have to kind of put up with a lot of stuff and sit through meetings and corporate politicking thing. And I was like, this is not interesting to me. And I was like, I feel more creative at heart. And that's ultimately why I departed and started on on this creative path. Well, and that's what's so interesting, because my first discovery of you was as an author. And then when I started digging deeper on who's this guy who I share a last name with, you do have that kind of traditional path at the beginning of your career, right? Your business background, your military service, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then somehow kind of the spin moves into the creative space. I guess the real question is kind of, can you talk about those moments? What were those moments that kind of shaped the departure from the traditional path of the things that you were doing and into the things that you wound up doing? Yeah, I've always managed to be able to, I guess, do a few things at once. And I think a lot of people say do one thing, do it well. But I was able to sort of play different audiences against and with each other. So when I I started as an investment banker at JP Morgan, and I was like, wait a second, I have access to a paycheck here. Let me start (laughs) financing jazz recordings. And I started just producing jazz recordings for free. And that was the sweetest deal in town because a lot of these musicians, especially in non-commercial music, they needed help and support. And so I was able to bring my, not just financing, I was able to bring my hedge fund clients into recording sessions. And then we went, traveled around the world making albums. And I developed a reputation of the finance people wanted to be with creative people. The creative people wanted to be with finance people. And I saw that combination. It helped me at work extensively because clients were like, this is the guy who want to have fun and actually make records of substance. This is the guy to work with. So I just did that. And you know, while I was at JP Morgan, I was being paid to go travel the world and do emerging market deals. But it occurred to me, my dad left law engineering after 30 years. There was a boardroom issue and he left. He resigned under pressure. I said, you know what? I don't want to be the guy that works at a company for 30 years and then my entire identity is gone. And I, one day he's going to have to give in my JP Morgan business card. And I want to take my own business card with me. So I ended up writing a book, four books actually, while I was at JP Morgan. I would go to the public library, research, and just, I had piles of books on my desk and my office mates would say, what are you doing? I said, I'm just researching. <laughs> I was finance. So it was everything at once. And I ended up writing this piece within 30 minutes. I wrote this piece called Why You Should Have More Than One Career. And it got published. I'm not tooting my horn. I'm just going to show you how it hit a nerve. Sure. It got published by, by Harvard Business Review. And it's one of the most shared pieces in the last several years. And so I was surprised with the response. But I can always tell when it gets republished because a wave of people come to me and say, how do you do all this stuff? And then it's sort of explain. you got to find the intersection points. Yeah, that really speaks to me because it is fine to do one thing well, but it's when you're doing multiple things well, and you have to make the space. If I've learned anything in the last few years, it's 
I've let a lot of stuff go by the wayside, a lot of stuff. And it's not the classic, oh, when you have kids, you find out how much time you were wasting before. But it's, yeah, there's just a lot of dumb stuff I don't do anymore that makes the space for this conversation in the middle of a workday while I'm doing some consulting and while I'm writing a book and blah, 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 because you kind of have to make space for the things that matter. And it really kind of creates this forcing function of what doesn't matter. Yeah, 100%. I mean, this is why I don't serve on boards or even hang out a lot. Maybe that's to my, <laughs> <laughs> my detriment. But when an organization can really serve on a board, I said, let me help you on a project. Yeah. Right. There's an end date. But if I right. got to sit through meetings with people talking about accounting reports, I'm like, I will feel a visceral reaction to that. Or when people say, can I schedule some time to chat with you? I was like, here's my number. Just talk to me and call mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And that way it doesn't sit on your calendar. And if they flake, then it's on them. That's not me. So small things like that to keep your calendar optimized and free for creative time. It's interesting to me hearing your story because it seems like you found a way to combine things that might not be obvious to other people, right? Combining different ideas or different types of organizations. What types of projects do you find yourself drawn to? Well, initially I was finding myself drawn to projects that mix music with a message because I ultimately thought music is a really powerful way to create social change. You can write an op-ed and it gets maybe a million views or a hundred thousand views. You do a music album or a music video, it can get hundreds of millions of impressions. And for me, it's impact. So I did a project called American Dreamers. A friend of mine, John Diversa down at University of Miami, we were brainstorming ideas. I said, let's do a project on Dreamers, the DACA recipients. And these are people who brought to America as immigrants and children. And so we did a project, got 53 Dreamers on there, and it did really well. We did the Songs of America, and it was endorsed by Nancy Pelosi and Lindsey Graham. The project went on to win three Grammys. It was the most heralded jazz recording of recent memory. The reason I mention this is because people will come to me and say, come here, let's do a Duke Ellington record, or let's do this chart. And I'm like, well, let's do something that's going to make an impact and start. And so I'm able to leverage my relationships with the press, with media outlets, to sort of spotlight projects that are newsworthy. But that means you got to do a newsworthy project to begin with. So project selection is really important because a lot of people will just choose a project and go for it. But choosing the project is a lot of the battle. If you choose something that's going to get coverage later on, then you can really have leverage when you get these projects out. And it just is. So that's how I think about which projects to take on when it comes to music. And now I'm sort of moving more into the pop world because ultimately that's where the that's where the music industry is. So that's my evolution as a music producer. When did jazz come in as a child? What are those early memories and kind of places where jazz kind of got hooked, drew its hooks into you? My sister brought him a Miles Davis record and that was it. Which one? I was kind of blue and I listened to it. Damn right, man. That is, that's the album. Yeah. Oh my God. Good one, yeah. It's in my top 10. Yeah. I mean, you listen to that, it just speaks to you differently every time you hear it. And I I just kept on asking, are you sure they're improvising? (laughs) Because it sounds good. (laughs) And so that started my love affair with it. I was in high school. We had a pretty good high school jazz band. We were invited to Jazz at Lincoln Center in New York, put on by Wynton Marcellus. And that's where I developed a friendship with Wynton. He was interested in my playing and he became a mentor. And throughout my college years and early professional career in New York, we were very close, still are. And that's became my interest in jazz. And it still is a passion of mine. So I got to ask, the way I discovered you randomly was a kid's book, right? And I think I was 
joking with your team, it's I probably single-handedly bought 100 copies of Wheels on the Tuk-Tuk for friends with kids from their Indian friend, Roman. And I literally, in the note, I was like, I'm not related to this guy. I don't know who this (laughs) is. But how did that happen? As a guy who's dabbled in the creative space, I mean, it's not one, not two. It's something like eight or nine, dude. I mean, you literally have another one that just came out, Mother Goose Goes to India. Right, right. Well, first of all, we should figure out a way to get you a family discount. (laughs) (laughs) Only after we determine if we're actually family, dude. (laughs) I don't need to know your family. You're a very kind and affable individual. You're welcome here anytime in Atlanta. I'll say this. I think I had written a couple books and I was talking to my mother and she always wanted to write children's books. Her mother actually said planted the seed with her and... I was like, mom, well, we should do it. And she had this idea for this story, which became Bucket of Blessings. And we reached out and was lucky enough to get it published. And I think partly because I had somewhat of a success as a writer already. And then the first book did really well. It debuted on the New York Times list. And then the second book was Wheels on the Tuk Tuk. And we just kind of kept on going with it. And what's been interesting, I think we've been at it for almost 10 years now. Wait, so a clarification, your co-author is your mom? Correct. Oh my wow. gosh, I love that. That is That's did so not awesome. real. Wow. Yeah. So my mom and I write these books together and yeah, and she's and it's a great sort of way of just collaborating and Yeah, yeah. We're always coming up with ideas and this will work and this won't work and write the first draft usually and then I'll take a look at it and I'll just kind of wordsmith it. That's the relationship. And I was we were just talking to our editor at Simon and Schuster, and we asked her what are you seeing in the industry? And she said, we're looking for multicultural books. And so we were trendy before it was trendy. And the fact that it's Indian American is multicultural, our books have just been doing really well, thanks to folks like you. And now it's just every year we have a new book coming out for the next few years. So it's been a really a blessing to be able to collaborate in this way with my mother. Wow. Yeah, because it's something about the projects you choose. And again, it's amazing to have great conversations with your parents and things, but to build and make something with people. Even if they're not family, I think that's one of the richest things you can do is to have Sharon and I doing this, a creative collaborator. It deepens the bonds of a friendship and an understanding with someone. 100%. And so for that to be your mom, that's just amazing. Yeah. I kind of joke sometimes I don't have that many friends. I have a lot of acquaintances, but the people I build projects with become friends for life because it's like combat for several years. (laughs) (laughs) I laugh because it's true. Yeah. But then you come back to it and Arturo Farrell and I or John Diverso, we haven't worked together on a project in a while, but I'll pick up the phone and it's because we've been through really deep creative conversations with them. And I find that kind of engagement is so meaningful, maybe to a fault where it lets me not, I don't pick up the phone, just call a friend and catch up because then it's like, well, for what? You know, you're there, but let's make something happen. And that's when that's where I get Joe Campbell, follow your bliss is when you're creating with people. It seems like the way you talk about your success, it almost seems magical. I wrote this book and then it won this award or I created this project and it won three Grammys. Tell us about a time when maybe you created something that you thought would be wonderful and it didn't exactly succeed the way you thought it would. Sure. I will say this. A lot of those things that I mentioned, it's not without a lot of work underneath of the course. surface, right? Yeah, of and course. So sometimes people, will, they'll see the tip of the iceberg, but they don't see the mountain of work that sometimes it's just their reward is based on hustle. So that's one thing, but a lot of things haven't worked out. And when I take on a, a new project, I'm, I'm like, this probably won't work, but I'll try it. An example was really when I started my career, I moved to India to start a Facebook for India and it failed. I mean, and that's why I got a job at JP Morgan. And I <laughs> I was writing computer code for JP Morgan and sending my paychecks to my colleague in India. Wow. And 
when I started at JP Morgan, I cried because I felt like a sellout. And I was like, I cannot believe I'm working at an investment bank. This is like the last place I want to be. But I was there and I made the best of it, but it didn't work. I wrote a book when I was in college on the future of education. I sent it to 35 publishers, got rejections. The book's still underneath my bed, serves as motivation. (laughs) So it's not very good, but uh, (laughs) that's probably why. But yeah, it happens all the time. And one of the reasons that I just try for everything. I'll submit for things. I'll try. I'll push. You get a couple of singles. You get people see that. It's like, wow. It's like, well, you don't realize I try for a lot more. And you're just seeing a fraction of the stuff that I've put my hat in the ring for. Yeah. Yeah. The iceberg analogy is, I mean, the best compliment that sometimes I feel like I can get about my work. And sometimes it's a little underhanded, but it's, oh, when someone just assumes it's easy, not realizing kind of call it the everything beneath the iceberg, because it's not about showing off that it's easy, but it's just to make this look easy requires a lot of work. To make the UX or the smooth around the edges, the accessibility of a thing, the polish, so to speak, it requires a bajillion iterations and polishes to make it that nice, that easy. Yeah. You look at all like a, a good athlete or a good musician, it's like minimal movement on their instrument or whatever, but to get to that muscle memory, it's really difficult. So you said it really well, Ram, and it's all about putting in the time and honing your craft. Do you ever feel like you are in situations where you need to change anything about yourself to fit in? At this point in my life, well, I've kind of accepted who I am. Yeah. <laughs> I would hope by now. I mean, I can <laughs> come across as intense and I've actually mellowed a little bit over the years because I just want to get things done. And sometimes that can come across as intimidating or when I'm in the creative world, especially now I'm more in the pop world, I've got to sort of not come across as super i need to be more chill and <laughs> wear sneakers and not look wear a blazer and everything right right so there's a bit of that but i also re- realize sometimes it's okay to be an outsider because people want to connect with me because of that perspective so the only place i feel a little bit out of place now is like the pop music world where it's very much about having style and i, I really don't have that much style <laughs> <laughs> so yeah if you were to label yourself? Because as I hear you talking, it's true, right? The jazz thing, I can kind of understand that connection because it sounds like you grew up playing in a jazz band. And so that's a natural progression. How did the pop thing come up? Growth. I went to a Taylor Swift concert. I've sort of gotten to know her manager and he invited me, her team invited me to a concert in Dallas, Texas. I was working in Dallas, Texas, and went to the show, and my mind was blown. It was the first time I'd been to a pop concert in 20 years, just going to see Aerosmith. And I just realized, again, the word leverage. It's when I put out a recording, maybe 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 streams. Mm-hmm. When she puts out something, there's hundreds of millions of streams, and it's also a spectacle. And I realized maybe I'm, I'm a big fish and a, not a big fish, but there's not that many jazz producers, right? And, right. But in the pop world, there's a whole ton of people. And I realized if you want to learn and grow and monetize in the music space. The music industry is really the top 40 world. And it's hard to get in with that crowd. So that's, it was really just growth. I don't want to compare myself to the likes of some of the great people who've made this career transition, but look at Quincy Jones. He started as a jazz musician, jazz producer, and he ended up going to work with Michael Jackson and Mm -hmm. working with some of the best acts because they understand the music and understand the arrangements and the complexities of just how the sound form works. You can take that skill to other types of music. And then when you actually start to deconstruct a pop song, you may, people may dismiss it, but when you actually listen to it intently with the layers and there's a lot going on that it may seem catchy and the lyrics might seem silly or whatever, but 
when you peel back the layers of all the synths and the riser effects and the drums and the pe- and there's a lot of layers, sometimes hundreds of layers in these pop songs that you may not hear. And it just it's a new craft to which I really started to enjoy because jazz music is really produced. You just go to a recording session and you play together and you pick the best takes. Pop music is really produced on the digital audio workstation on a, on Ableton or whatever. And that's, you have to listen to the hi-hat sounds. It's a much more tactile way of producing than just, all right, let's just hire some great musicians and make some music. Hmm. It's interesting. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I mean, balance is a word that's non-existent in this question, but it's how does your personal life kind of integrate into your work life and your work life being the creation of things, right? You don't have the nine to five clock in. It's about conversations and collaborations. But where does kind of professional Kabir blend into personal Kabir? Yeah, well, since the pandemic began, <laughs> I left in New York and moved back to Atlanta. I live with my folks, my parents. So we all meet it. We don't really see each other during the day. But at four o'clock p.m., we all gather. My sister comes and we all have tea together at 4 p.m. every day. That's beautiful. And wow chai and there's some my mom put out some cookies or some samosas and we just talk about updates updates what's happening and i just just finished making this movie on my dad called close the loop and close loop all means finishing communication and so that's what we sort of we're all sometimes on our phones hey did you close the loop with this person with this person so my family is a little bit like wired like that where we're all doing our own things we come back we have a powwow every day and then we kind of disperse after sometimes we'll have dinner together well, we always have dinner together. And then from like four to six, it's like family time. And then we like go back to our respective areas and do what we need to do. So that's kind of the battle rhythm for the day. And that's how I find I'm always around family now, which is beautiful. So that's how I like I find, to close uh, the loop thing. It's like having an accountability partner. 100%. Right. But there's samosas involved. And samosas and chai involved. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Best meeting ever. Sharon and I serve on a, ironically, we serve on a board together for a friend's travel business without getting too much into it. And pre-pandemic, the running joke with the founder of this business was we just kind of showed up for the snacks. Yeah. Because it was Italian travel and he would have prosciutto and wine at every board meeting. <laughs> Right. The best cheese, the best prosciutto, the best wine. Amazing. Yeah. Now that the board meetings are on Zoom, we're kind of like, oh, these aren't the same. Yeah. <laughs> he does exactly. send really great holiday boxes with handmade pasta and other things. So it is worth yes. it. It's still worth it. <laughs> I want to join that board, I think. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We don't look at financial. Well, we do, but we don't look at like accounting spreadsheets and stuff like that. It's yeah. Totally different. That's, That's only the first slide. That's only the first slide. <laughs> also, I should say, I'm just talking about works for myself. Sometimes people think I'm pushing you. You got to do what works best for you. I've just found what best is for making my life the best it can be. Of course. Well, so the last couple of years have been interesting to say the least, right? Across a lot of vectors in life. And there's a lot more interesting shit hitting the wall as we speak. What kind of keeps you up at night about the world? Or do you kind of just stay reserved about it and just kind of stay focused on the day? Yeah, at this point, I've kind of unplugged from after we had sort of the change of political leadership. A few <laughs> when someone was kicked off Twitter. Got it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel like I didn't have to watch the news as much. And like, <laughs> there's someone kind of responsible at the helm. 
And so I've kind of checked out a little bit and I go on what's called news diets, which I don't even check the news. I mean, I'll check the news, but I don't consume a ton of news. You're not doom scrolling every day. No. And I have timers on my, I don't put any social media apps on my phone. I grayscale my phone. So because I realize at the end of the day, I can create the world I want to see through my art and my children's books or literature. So my days are usually highly creative. I'm either practicing guitar for a couple hours or I'm writing or I'm talking to a friend about a certain project. And it's just balancing projects. It's like a stovepipe. Right now, I think I have maybe 15 album projects in the pipeline, two movies, two books. And it may seem like a lot, but it's not. That's just what's on the roster. And it's just sort of taking the baby steps every day to make sure that everything's kind of moving through the pipeline. Of the projects without revealing anything specific, but what's the most exciting on your plate? What's the area or the type of things? Obviously, this movement into pop for sure, but what's got you excited right now about the work? Yeah, I think I have a pop album coming out called Threshold. No, it's called Unfolding. That's when you have too many projects, you forget what the title is. But I think <laughs> I think it's called Unfolding. It's four pop songs. And I'm excited about it because, again, it's this new direction for me. But that project's done and it's baked. One project I haven't revealed publicly yet, I'll share it with you. It's called Sand and Foam. Sand and Foam is music inspired by Kolo Gibran, which is a great Middle Eastern poet, writer of Lebanese origin. And I work with two wonderful Sirotis, Ayan and Aman, uh, the sons of Amjad Ali Khan, who were Sirotis from India. And we just created eight songs that are inspired by the great Lebanese poet. So that project, Sand and Foam, it's like Indian fusion meets beats and trap rhythms. That's going to come out in June or July. And I was just finalizing the album artwork for that. That's what I'm excited about. Well, I mean, speaking of, we kind of went there, right? It's You and I both have this kind of Indian American heritage, but we're here. We're children of the South, literally, right? How do you kind of maintain a connection back to the motherland? I mean, obviously, all the books you're writing with your mom, it sounds like. But how do you view that? How do you maintain that? Because that's actually something I'm struggling with. I have a half Indian daughter, I'm not close to where my folks are, so I don't get samosas at tea time, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's even growing up in the culture, and when I say the culture, I mean the auntie and uncle circuit around my parents. It was easier to kind of get those weekend injections of culture at Temple, at the dinner party. But here, as an adult outside of New York City with a half Indian daughter, it's hard. Diwali and Holi. I li- we literally had to do a podcast episode talking to actual brown people about Diwali because I didn't know what to really do anymore. How do you maintain those connections to the culture and the heritage? It's tough. You have to be kind of vigilant about it, right? And so, especially, I think we can relate. We grew up with Indian mothers and parents, and we were the recipient of this culture, right? But then you get old enough, you have to be the ambassadors for it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, how do you actually, you're on Wikipedia reading about the tradition? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. <laughs> or so, starting a podcast where you interview Indian people sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a challenge. Obviously, our children's books are great for that. Sometimes I read the author's note of what we wrote about a particular holiday before I go like talk about it. But I think about that a lot in the future. Am I going to be up to speed on things? And I also think it helps to like, go to India. I haven't been in a while, many years. I'd like to just to go and see cousins and relatives. But travel these days are still pretty, I don't know if I'm up for it in terms of pandemic, what's happening in India. So you just have to read up. <laughs> and both of you are intellectually curious people. So I'm sure you guys are mastering whatever tradition you're trying to teach, but it's tough. And particularly the Indian community here in Atlanta, at least my understanding is very splintered. There's different groups. 
And it's like if you're with the Punjabis, and then there's the Gujaratis, and there's this, the, the people who go to the Gurdwara yeah, and yeah, the temple. Yeah. And it's where do you even hook in? And there is a bunch of young Indian entrepreneur groups, and there's an Indian entrepreneurial group. And if you don't go to it, you're seen as not part of it. But then if you go to it, you have to be, you have to go to everything. And so I ended up just not doing anything, of course. So people don't know why I'm here. <laughs> What's interesting about that? So I grew up, while not too far from where you grew up, I grew up in Alabama, in the suburb I grew up in. There was back then there were only 15 Indian families, and we'd go to Atlanta to visit my late uncle. And to your point, massive communities. It's just massive diaspora. So the Punjabis could have a Punjabi group, the Gujaratis could have a Gujarati group. But in I actually didn't know I was Punjabi till I was like 19, visiting family in England, because in mm. The Indian community in Alabama I grew up in, it was now I know that, oh, this uncle was Gujarati, that uncle was this, this uncle was Muslim, because it was just about, wow, we're the 15 brown families in Alabama, right? (laughs) And now being in the broader New York City area, right? I've noticed that with our generation, it's the people who all went to Penn together, but the Punjabi crew from that or whatever. And I kind of try to stay away from that. So I was at a kid's birthday party the other day and I met a parent. It was clear he was Indian, and he introduced himself, and clearly his name and his accent. And the bond was more like, oh, okay, we're both kind of fish out of water here. And I feel like that's the bond my parents had. As I meet Indian people, even as you and I are effectively establishing a friendship, right? It's, and again, the last name helps but as far as reaching out, but in the work, obviously. But it, it's I actually like not having all the things we have in common to be the thing that brings us together, if that makes sense. We're both fish out of water. Yeah. And that's the immigrant experience. And that's the Indian American experience. When we start to get into, it's interesting because now Indians have had, what, 100 years or roughly of having communities in the U.S. And within the U.S., it's become pockets within pockets. And of course, there's a part of that's human nature. But I also think the more we can identify as a monolithic group, even though there's complexity, it helps with translating to political support and just having more support as a community. I don't know that much about the Indian community here in Atlanta, but it is, I wish there was more ways to unite the community. I know the Indian consulate, I don't know if there's an Indian consulate where you are, but I'm sure there is, but do they do events? Like that's another way to sort of get connected. I mean, anyone listening to this, if they're looking for cultural traditions, usually the consulates are like the deans in these towns doing different cultural events. So you can kind of usually plug into that, but that's a very kind of stately way of, of experiencing culture. If we were to turn back time all the way back to your childhood in Atlanta, what's a piece of advice that you would give to your younger self, knowing what you know now? I would just say, as soon as you hear the word Bitcoin, buy a ton of it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're not trying to create some butterfly effect ripples, dude. You you don't want to wreck the space-time continuum. (laughs) I know. That would be something. Everything would be like, take care of itself. Because then you buy an asset like that. To be honest, I think... I would have said, spend more time on the craft of making music or playing, like learning the guitar. Because I knew back then, this is why I didn't want to be an athlete as much, because you know your body is wonderful, but then your body sort of gives on you. Whereas music is really a gift. I've seen it. I've played it all across the world. And I've just seen that how it can sort of fill people with hope and love. I wish I just was better at it. And I wish I'd put the time in. But of course, when you're that young, you don't see it as, wow, this is something that you have that can really be just a beautiful gift for folks. So I wish I had picked up the classical guitar many, many years ago, and I had years of just playing for people. And that might seem weird because I am in music, but I'm not at the, like a virtuoso level of really now of any instrument to be able to do that as much as I wanted to. And I feel like 20 years of practicing is kind of a tall task, but hopefully both like music 
the joy it can it can bring to people's hearts and minds. I mean, I think that's a way better piece of advice of investment than Bitcoin, my friend. Better <laughs> <laughs> than <done> both. <laughs> <laughs> music, more practice, more music, and buy some Bitcoin. Exactly, Got get it. it all covered. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Kabir, I feel I could and I want to talk to you for many, many hours. But I don't know, Sharon, what do you think? You think he's ready for speed round? Kabir, I think you're ready for speed round. Let's do it. So Kabir, what is one thing about you that no one expects? I'm not fast at answering speed round. (laughs) (laughs) One thing about me, I'm not a very good driver, only because my mind wanders. And by that time, I'm in the middle of the road. So, and Atlanta, you've got 10 lanes on the highway. So. Yeah, exactly. So I just don't like, and this is for many years. I haven't owned a car since I, well, it was back in Atlanta. So for many years, I was in, didn't have a car. So if we're together, I should not be the one driving. I'm happy to pay for the Uber, but you don't want me to, you don't want me driving. <laughs> so who drives you around when you need to get anywhere? I drive myself around. Okay. And it's like, it's always you just like, don't want to be in the car with them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's always like, all right, this is focus. It's like a meditation thing where I've got to, you know, when your mind goes on automatic pilot and like you just drive. Yeah. During that time, I got to be steady, steady. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. What is a book, movie, television show or song with characters that you relate to? Interesting. I think I recently saw Succession. Did you oh, yeah. 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 Do I relate to it? <laughs> I'm a little worried if you do. <laughs> <laughs> I think I relate to that. Was it Greg, the guy who's kind of in the family, but not? Yeah. That's how I felt. The son-in-law. He's yeah, a son-in-law. Son-in-law. Yep. I kind of feel like that when I work in banking. I didn't know. All these top shot, MBA, Goldman Sachs people. And I was like, this dude, just I want to be a musician, but I'm stuck at JP Morgan. And like, I don't know what I'm doing here. But oddly, that was how I attracted business. So I kind of relate to that guy a little bit. Other than that, I read a ton of nonfiction. So I wish I had more. Of all the stuff you've read in the last two years that we've been holed up, what's something you would give to a friend as a gift of the stuff you've read? BS Jobs. Have you, have you read that book by David Graeber? He actually spells it out. Bull. I don't know if I can curse on your podcast, but... Yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, well, Bullshit Jobs. And I read that. And I was like, yes, because David Graeber is an amazing late now, passed away a couple years ago, anthropologist. And he's just saying, why do so many people work bullshit jobs? And these are jobs that they don't add any value. And the people working the jobs know that they're bullshit, but they work them anyway. And he says, one of the reasons is people don't agree on a solution to this is because it's taboo to even talk about it. But there are a lot of jobs that you sort of sit at your desk, you don't even know what you're doing, and time just goes by. And it's a clinical look at the proliferation of this. And I think a lot of people could identify because he, he cites these polls of like 45% of people are underworked or don't find their job meaningful or whatever. And it kind of shows how society evolved to this point. And he doesn't have that many solutions other than like maybe a universal basic income. But I think anyone who's in a situation like that would see, oh, there's a lot of people in this situation. That would be one. Daily Rituals was another one I reread recently, which is a book of like 150 or so authors, academics, artists. And the author just is one page and it goes through one page on like all these people and what they, how they structure their days for a living. And it's just a beautiful look at like, okay, Sigmund Freud went for a walk and then like he came inside and fell on a bed and took a nap for two hours and wrote, you know what I mean? So you right. start to realize the creative life is filled with idiosyncrasies, habits, and just quirky people. And that's okay. Well, you know, it's funny. Both of those books are almost flip sides of a coin because with the first one, 
<laughs> I have another podcast on like executive interviews and stuff. So hopefully none of those listeners are listening to me saying this, but it's in the first few years of my career, I was like, I'm getting paid to do this. And it wasn't a pinch myself. This is so cool. But it was this kind of tacit realization that a lot of the things we do for a living are kind of inflating this economic and societal kind of bubble, if you will. It's like we're all kind of spinning wheels and hamster wheels, right? I am Jack's khaki pants, right? Versus the other side of, and again, UBI is a great way to do it. We don't live. I mean, why do people do bullshit jobs? I'm sorry, health insurance, right? I'm sorry. Things, and it's this unfortunate thing. We have less entrepreneurship because we don't have enough of a net to kind of allow for that, if that makes sense. And it's even the privilege that folks like you and I and share and talking about we can afford the time to have this creative intellectual curiosity pursuit or pursue some of these other projects well because the bullshit job put some seed capital in our mm-hmm. bank account it's a point of privilege that we have but that sucks because there's so many people without those privileges that have just as much creative worth that are out there 100 yeah i agree with you there yeah and the book kind of steps through this but yeah there are reasons that people take on these jobs and everyone has to live the life that they want to do. But I realized I've been in situations where I'm like, exactly, I'm, I get paid to do this. So really? And sometimes it's a blessing. Sometimes it's, it's a curse. Sharon knows about a project I'm on where I feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> so Kabir, other than the 4 p.m. samosa, what's your favorite mom dish? Oh, she makes very good bang and Bertha. So eggplant, roasted eggplant. It's a process to make it, but that when you start to smell it a little bit, oh my gosh, that's the best. Lights up the house, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when are you both visiting? Next weekend. I'm there. Dude, (laughs) when we come home to Alabama, we fly through Atlanta. So (laughs) there you go. Yeah, man. What's your least favorite food, Kabir? Scandinavian. All of it. Just anything Scandinavian. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a specific dish or just the whole cuisine? I mean... I'm the parts I guess I like, but I don't know, even know it enough to, and I've tried it and there's like smoked this and pairing that. So I need some warmth and some love and some curry. Right. <laughs> and you can yeah. tell, like, I'm not trying to knock it, but what food travels well, there's Chinese food and Indian food in every major place. Right. And I can't think of a Scandinavian place here in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> I love Scandinavian. Ikea. Ikea. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, those meatballs. Those meatballs, right? <laughs> they are good. good. Pretty good. I hear you. Kabir, who's someone out there that you would want to talk to on a podcast? I think I would want to talk with, other than Elon Musk, I think that would be interesting. I would want to talk to Trey Young, who's a basketball player on the Hawks. And I would want to know why he makes games more typical than they need to be. <laughs> and- <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you have a love-hate relationship. Uh, the Hawks got eliminated one? last night. So Is he the one that got into a fight with LeBron James this season? I don't think it was may have been. I don't think it was him. Maybe. He might be. I think a lot of people pick on LeBron. LeBron yeah. would be a great interview, yeah, that's too. True. That's true. But I think I got to go back. I feel like I was watching a game where I think it was Trey Young. He got kicked out of the game because he actually. Oh, I think you might be right. Yeah. He actually literally started a fight with LeBron. It felt like a schoolyard fight on the yeah. court. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I hear you on that. Maybe you could join me on that interview. You have situational awareness already. You've done your research. I mean, you just swap one cycle out for the other. Easy. <laughs> We've got a guest host. Yes. <laughs> the key question would be, what's up with you, dude? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. And final question for you, Kabir. What does being a modern minority mean for you? 
means creating works that sort of share your heritage, but gets it out into the community. So the children's being a, books being a good example, sharing a bit of your culture with the American experience. I often say, what does it mean to be an American? We often hear about the African-American experience, but the Chinese-American experience is part of the American experience. The Indian-American experience is part of the American experience. So there's this great book called The Omni-Americans, written by Albert Murray back in the 60s, just talk in 70s rather. It talks about just, we're all omni-Americans. It's important not to hide our culture. I think there was time when I was a teenager when I was didn't want to be Indian or I didn't really fit in at school. But now I realize what makes me unique is my, my culture and on, in straddling two different worlds. And so being able to share a bit of that with the wider community is how I think I can be a modern minority. I love that answer. Thank you. Yeah. Kabir, it's just been so interesting getting to know you from afar and then finally working up the courage to reach out and just finding out you're just, I think we have more in common. <laughs> and I'm genuinely excited about a future samosa with you in Atlanta sometime soon. So thank you for making the time to, to have a chat. My pleasure. You guys are both great to have a forum like this. I think that's really important what you're doing. And if I can be of services, please let me know. Absolutely. Thank you, Kabir. Well, thanks so much, man. All right. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. That's it for now. We'd love to hear I've from you. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.